Episode 3 of the Effing Up Podcast with Scott Callender was originally released on February 15, 2023. Scott has built success through thinking about things outside of the box. Conformity, comfortability, and complacency have no place in his work. And once he's tackled his own efforts, he has a hard time not looking around him to find ways to create broader business improvements. While this approach has benefited business operations in general, it hasn't always made him popular with his coworkers. Scott's journey from helping others find their own path to success to becoming the mayor of coffee is a fascinating one. Here's Scott's episode. Enjoy. My wife was running a nursing home oh, wow. and was very successful. And I think making more than me and doing a great job. And I was super proud of her. And seeing her success, I thought, well, I really need to figure out how to step this up here. The world is obsessed with fast-track success. It's easy to think that people become successful overnight. But let's face it, more often than not, what we see on social media is total BS. I'm here to look past the perception of perfect success and focus on life's detours, perceived mistakes, and even wrong choices and understand the real road traveled up the career ladder. After all, we're all effing up. Scott Callender, a Dayton, Ohio native and West Coast transplant, has built a career combining his passion for coffee, building businesses, and developing innovative and creative brands. In 2006, Scott moved to California, where he spent six years exploring elements of roasting, brewing, and serving coffee with respected coffee professional Andrew Barnett. Scott then moved to Milan to earn his MBA at SDA Bocconi. He focused on entrepreneurial and marketing studies while fully immersing himself in Italian culture. He's in love with Italy. In 2013, Scott was able to combine his love for business Copy and Italian design by joining the La Marzocco team as director of La Marzocco Home. During his tenure, Scott helped develop the Linea Mini Home Espresso Machine and led the creation and launch of La Marzocco Home. After a successful run with La Marzocco Home, Scott moved on to join the commercial team at La Marzocco and collaborated on the launch of KB90 and developed the popular barista competition, Crush the Rush. Today, Scott is the Senior Vice President of Business Development for Spin, where he is creating a disruptive brand in the consumer coffee market that aims to improve coffee in every home in America through a connected espresso maker that utilizes centrifugal force to mimic any style of coffee, from espresso to drip to cold brew. Scott, I'm so excited to have you on Effing Up. Thank you so much for joining. Super happy to be here, Deanne. I have to say, personally, I'm just very excited that you're doing a podcast because you have always been one of the best conversationalists I've known. So super excited you have a podcast and happy that you invited me to do this. So I feel honored. Why don't you tell us about what you're up to today? It's been about a year. I joined a coffee startup called Spin. Spin is a centrifugal coffee brewer that takes whole beans, grinds it in a grinder, puts it in a centrifuge, and then mimics pretty much any coffee style you can imagine from espresso 
to drip coffee, to cold brew. It does all the different coffee styles using one centrifuge brewing device. I do business development, marketing, sales for that company. They ask, like, I needed to know, but of course I know I have a spin. My husband is obsessed with, with coffee because you've paved the way for him, not because he's the governor of coffee like you are, but your career is pretty epic pretty fun to witness and you make it look easy. I know it's not. Bravo to you and your success and lucky spin. They get to have you. Yeah. Thank you. Let's go back to college um, or maybe even just prior to college. Did you have a vision for your future? Not, not at all, really. No, I think one of the things that I've done in my career is I, I was a college counselor. This question's interesting for me since I've spent, I spent hours and hours and hours with tons of kids trying to help them think about what they want to do with their lives. And I can truthfully say, having gone through that experience with others that I had no idea growing up for me, I had the model of my parents and my family and my entire family was medical. So there was a lot of, I wouldn't say even pressure, just impetus for me to go the medical route. And so it was a foregone conclusion. That's what I was going to do in college. And I started immediately signing up for pre-med. And then I had no idea what I wanted to do for my major after that. So yeah, mm. I started pre-med and just started experimenting with life and trying things on. I think that was the path at the beginning. Did you end up switching from pre-med to something else? I was pre-med business. And the business thing was only because when I was in high school, I had a student stay at our house who was visiting from a college and he was a business major and he played ping pong with me. And I asked him what his major was and he said business. And I was like, he was cool. And that was pretty much how I chose <laughs> business. No joke. That Shout is like, if I think guy. back on it, that was it. He, he told me he was a business major and I was like, that guy's cool. And he said something about like, yeah, you know, if you're going to do pre-med, Business is great because it's a little easier than being full science. And I was like, well, that sounds good. I want some spare time. So <laughs> yeah, let's do that. And that was as deep as I went on choosing my major. I had no idea what I was getting myself into in the sciences. I was not prepared for that. I think going into my final exam, my very first quarter of college, I had a C or D, C, I think, going into my final exam, I spent... 48 hours straight studying in this like little room where I closed myself in and I walked into the test and somehow I had gotten all the questions that were on the test in my practicing exams and I aced it got like 99.9% .9 and pulled out like a B plus and uh, yeah it was epic but also at the same time I was like I'm not sure this is for me this is uh, I'm not, not sure, like... sustainable for the rest <laughs> of the quarters that I have I was like I, I don't I don't know if this is what I want to do. And so then I kept with pre-med. I tried to go back to the sciences again the next year and I actually did much better. I think I was more prepared for college, um, mm -hmm. but it became clear to me that I was more, I was more creative. I wanted to do something that wasn't medical. It just felt very structured. And I felt like I was not a structured person. And that became clear to me quickly. It was probably my junior year. It's like I went down the chart. I went to, from pre-med to PT. And then my senior year, I like switched into a bunch of graphic design classes. Mm. Right at the end when I had done everything for my pre-med PT. And then I took a bunch of art uh, right at the end. And what brought that on, you think? 
again, some pretty thin reasoning, which was I really enjoyed sitting on a computer and I had always played on computers since I was a kid. I thought, what can I actually do that would be a job on a computer? I saw people making stuff that was really creative on computers. And I was like, oh, maybe that's what I could do. Not a smart decision for me because I was always the kid that couldn't even draw like a stick figure. So I had zero business getting into graphic design. I have no idea what I was thinking, but I just thought, oh, right. Well, the computer, I'm good at computers so I can figure it out. But I was never really an artist, but somehow I thought that was a good idea. Yeah. Did you work while in college? I did. I was working, I worked as a waiter. So first at a Mexican restaurant called Rio Bravo, and then two or three years at Outback Steakhouse. Mm, that's the answer I was waiting for right there. Uh-huh. Yeah, there it was. Yep. And, Talk to and us about like, that blooming onion, Scott. <laughs> yeah, the blooming onion. Uh, bloom walking in. Yeah. I And I have to say, looking back, that was actually a formational moment for me because it got me into a kitchen and it got me into food service. And the boss that I had at Outback Steakhouse was incredible. This guy named, I believe his name was Matt Robinson. He did this interview with me when I came to interview at Outback Steakhouse. He was sitting at a table and he was forming a pyramid out of drink cozy things. Or he was like building a pyramid basically out of coasters. And he didn't say a word to me. He just said, come sit down. And I sat down in front of him. He's building this pyramid. And then the whole thing fell and it all fell on the floor and I'd been helping him build it. So I got down and we cleaned it up together and put it back all up on the table. And as I stood up, he just held out his hand and said, welcome to Outback. Oh, wow. Because you were like, part, because you were part of what he was yeah. doing. He was just this incredible guy that cared. He was always checking in on me. One time I got tickets to a hockey game and I came in and I was bummed because I couldn't go to the hockey game. And he's like, you look sad today. What's going on? And I was like, well, I got these tickets to a hockey game and I can't go. And he's like, oh, I'll work your shift. Oh, he's wow. like, you go. And it was like, you know, he's the owner of the Outback and he worked my waiter shift for me that night. Yes. Servant you know? leadership. So it's like stuff like that. Anyway, so that got me into kitchens. It got me into food. I loved the creativity, the camaraderie, the interaction with people. I love serving people. I love making them happy. And that was very formational to what I realized I enjoyed. And I liked the instant feedback of doing something well and getting a tip. Mm. That was really important for me. It's like I did something and if I did it really well, I got a higher tip. Mm. And from an analytics perspective and just like, trying to understand what makes something successful, that was a real key moment for me. You graduate college and then you head on to the creative circus to get a certification. What was your strategy about entering that program? Maybe explain yeah. the program a little bit too. Yeah. So creative circus, actually creative circus just closed. I was seeing this on LinkedIn, but mm -hmm. I think they shut down after, I don't know how many years they were open, but it just shut down. It's very sad. Actually. It's just like, this is for weird kids. And so many of the friends I made there have gone on and just had these successful careers in advertising in other places. So the school is basically built for creatives in advertising. So art directors, copywriters, designers. And the thing that was really interesting about the creative circus is they didn't just teach you art. They really taught you how to think strategically. And there was a culture there that really eschewed these norms. If you 
we're going to go into advertising and do something that was just like what everyone else was doing, you failed. And what the process was, is you would sit in the classroom with your classmates, you'd be partnered up art director, uh, copywriter, just like you would in an ad agency. And you would come up with ideas and throw them up on the wall. And people would just sit there and ridicule you basically and say, that doesn't, that's no good because of this. It was instant feedback again that I loved. It was this really beautiful community of creatives and teachers that pushed you to think differently, to come up with ideas that weren't the normal. And if you ever put up something that seemed they had seen before, they were just like, nah, pull it down, throw it away. Hmm. Were there any challenges that you faced while at the creative circus? Yes. I, and also in retrospect, probably around the second quarter, and there was eight quarters at the school, so two years, I started thinking maybe I shouldn't have been an art director. Maybe I should have been a copywriter. Or there was one class that we took where there was a strategist who came in. And it was all about writing the creative brief instead of being the one that executed on the creative brief and came up with the writing, the lines, and the concepts. I was really good at the concepts and decent at the writing and then struggled at the art. And then what I really enjoyed was the one class where I got to write the creative briefs because I realized the strategy was actually where I was good. Like really, that was my real talent. And so I had this moment of like, how do I get into that? But I was in this thing and I'd been taught like, you never quit. Once you start something, you push through. And in some ways... The fact that art direction was so hard for me and such a challenge and not necessarily my natural place of success, it made me want to not quit and it made me want to push through and get really good at it. And so I stuck with it. Hmm. In many ways, jumping ahead, I think if I had shifted either to copywriting or strategy, I might have even been a little bit more aligned with an advertising career. Again, like looking back at my creative circus experience, the most valuable thing I took away from that was the ability to think strategically and throw away any idea that felt normal to me or felt like I had seen it before. And I think throughout my entire career and all my phases, it's probably the thing that drives people that work with me the craziest is whenever they show me an idea or they show me an example, like, let's do it like Apple or whoever, I immediately am revolted by that idea because Mm. of the creative circus, Mm. because they teach you like, if you're copying something else, you have completely failed and get out of the classroom, basically. Following completing that program, you joined the Hauser Group as art director. What skills did you encounter going from education to the workplace? I struggled through my art directing and not being naturally talented at that. It became more and more apparent when I got my job, that I wasn't necessarily going to be able to fake my way through that forever. There was conversations that were had around me where they'd be talking about strategy or positioning and all of those things I would jump in on and say, actually, here's how I think we should do this. And they'd all look at me and they're like, don't you have some pretty pictures to draw? And not really, but I mean, that was kind of, it was pretty frustrating to me to know that I could make contributions in a lot of areas in advertising 
And yet the function I had chosen was not my strong point, actually. And so I felt like I didn't get the respect I could gain if I had gone into kind of a different function in the workplace there. I got to the place where I could get passable ads and like they were okay, they were good, but they weren't like amazing. And there would always be like a senior art director or somebody else who would touch it up a little bit for me and just take it to that next level. And for whatever reason, I could just never quite get it to the place I wanted it to be on the design side. So when you went home at night, how did you feel? Frustrated, feeling like I know I have the thinking, but I'm in this thing where I'm just not feeling like I'm an A plus player. I felt like a B player. Mm. Yeah, that sucked. And slowly over time that like ate at me. And then also in our agency, we were a small agency and we were constantly fighting for new accounts. There were days where we'd sleep under our desk and do pitches the next day just to try and keep the business alive. So it was intense too. Mm. Not only was I kind of feeling like I wasn't really in my sweet spot, but then the work itself was very intense. Did you have a significant other or family life at that time? Did that affect your home life? Yeah, I was newly married. My wife, Jen, had just gotten a job. And she, like at age, like how old was she? 23. At age 23, she was running a nursing home and was very successful. And I think making more than me and doing a great job. And I was super proud of her. And seeing her success, I thought, I really need to figure out how to step this up here. And I was working these super long hours and not feeling super successful. And she was doing a great job. And I just felt like, yeah, I need to figure out how to step this up or make a change or do something here. Managed to stay at the Hazard Group for two years. Would you say you were hanging on, doing everything you could to make it work? And like, you were just determined to make it a long-term fit or you like timelining it out? Just felt lost. Kudos to my mom and dad for instilling in me this work ethic that was no matter what, you give it your best and you keep trying. And even if it's not the thing that you love, you keep at it. And I was determined. I put in hours and hours and hours trying to like make that job work. Held on. You know, I kept holding on, kept holding on, uh, doing enough to get by. Not because I wasn't working hard, but because I didn't really have that talent, I think. The big moment for me is there was a little coffee shop right across from my ad agency called Octane Coffee in Atlanta. And I started going in there and I would do all my thumbnailing, all my little drawings where you would sort of concept your ads and what they're going to look like and come up with your funny ideas. And I started liking to be there more because I didn't really love being in the, the office with all these people who were you know, maybe sneering at me or whatever. And I, I felt like when I was alone, I could come up with my ideas better. So I ended up spending all this time in this this coffee shop. Um, and during that time, started to get interested in what was going on in the coffee shop. Mm, here brews the love for coffee. Did you well, realize I, it at that point that you were like, oh my gosh, I love coffee. I want to get into coffee. Or you just look back and you're like, ha, that was the the moment when it all began. It, it wasn't even there. I actually will say like, if I, if I rewind on the coffee thing, there was this one teacher at the creative circus. It was cool. This super cool assignment. He told us, go find something that's pop culture and then find the subculture on it and write a report on it. Something that we all consume every day and then go find the people that are doing that thing in a different way. Mm. And we were all like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And 
I was going to Starbucks all the time for my classes whenever I would need somewhere to go to, to brainstorm. And for the assignment, I was like, okay, well, I guess I wonder if there's a subculture of coffee. That's what led me to this little shop called Octane. And they were doing, they were doing coffee different. They were talking about tasting notes and all these things that I just wasn't, I just thought was weird. And actually I kind of made fun of it. I think when I wrote my report on it, they were pouring latte art. When I walked in, the, the baristas were watching this uh, David Schomer video on how to pour latte art behind the bar. And I was like, these guys are some super nerds uh, doing this stuff. <laughs> Uh, Little did you know. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was funny. So I, I turned in this report. And then I so so to kind of pull it full circle, it so happened that that shop that I found for that report was the shop that was right across from my ad agency when I started there. So I already knew about it when I when I got there. And I was like, Oh, that weird shop is right across from my ad agency that I started at. And so that's why I knew to go in there and start hanging out there. Why did you ultimately leave the Hauser Group and then you went on to join um, Pacific Union College's Director of Marketing and Enrollment? I came to this like dead end where I was like, this advertising thing is not going to happen. I just, I knew it. And I had this crisis, but knew I just needed to call it quits so I could move on and find that next thing. The thing that actually led me to quit was a coffee company called Counterculture Coffee posted a job for a customer care person in Atlanta. And I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. If I could get this job, you know, I think this would be a really cool place for me to be. So I, I applied for that job, started the interview process, and then just couldn't stand the, the advertising thing anymore. Once I started imagining myself doing something else, it made me realize this was not going to be my thing. And so I just quit one day. I just walked into my boss's office. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Okay. So um, you quit without a backup. No, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I thought coffee, maybe I need to pursue this coffee thing. Um, and I had started roasting at home. I was roasting all my own green beans. I had an espresso machine at home. I was like really deep. I spent all my evenings reading everything I could get my hands on about coffee. Um, so I was, I was obsessed with it. So I was applying for this job. And then an old friend of mine, I went to Pacific Union College for my freshman year of college. Um, and an old friend of mine I happened to run into said, hey, why don't you come out and interview for this job? And I was like, yeah, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm going to work in coffee. And he's like, no, 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 just come out and check us out. It's not going to hurt anything. And it so happened that I had just read an article about a coffee roaster that had opened up in Santa Rosa, California, which is about 45 minutes away from this college. And I was like, oh, well, that'll be maybe a free trip for me to go meet this guy because he was doing something really special with coffee. So I took the interview. Uh, and then as soon as I was done my interview, I drove across the hills from Napa over to Sonoma. And I went and I met this guy who was roasting coffee in Santa Rosa. And we hit it off. And so I was like, well, this guy's cool. And he said, hey, if you ever want to come hang out, cup coffees with me, I'll teach you about coffee if you want. So I thought... Cool. I'll take this job at Pacific Union College in Napa and maybe stay a year and then go work in coffee with this other guy. Mm. Um, this is my ticket. And also, I wanted to get out of the South. I wanted to get to the West Coast. My wife, Jen, wanted to get to the West Coast. So it was kind of like a natural time to, to move and, and get out to California. The day I decided to accept the job to move out to California, 
uh, counterculture actually called me for the final interview. Oh man. Um, Peter Giuliano, who is a good friend of mine now called me for this final interview. And I was like, Oh my goodness. Like you guys too late. I just accepted this other job. And, uh, so anyway, so then I moved to California. I told the college, look, I'm just gonna be really honest with you. I'm just using you to get to California. Um, I have, (laughs) I, I, I have no intention of staying here longer than a year. I was like, and if you still want to offer me the job, that's cool. But I'm just going to tell you straight up, that's what's happening. And then spoiler alert, you stayed for about, what, five years? Yeah. It turns out getting a job in specialty coffee in the early 2000s was not that easy because there wasn't a lot of infrastructure in place for that. It was a really early days in that industry. And there just wasn't a lot of jobs that were decent paying and I could support a family with. Mm. I ended up getting to the college And, uh, what happened there was I started as a recruiter. So I started driving and flying all over the country, going to high schools and talking to high school kids about their careers and trying to give them advice. And it was very much a moment when I was like, how do I give advice? I still feel like a total lost soul. Um, but like you realize that is the advice, right? That we're all lost souls trying to figure it out. And that is actually the advice. And welcome Uh, to effing up. (laughs) And welcome to effing up. That was actually a really important time for me because I spent just incredible amounts of alone time on the road, driving, listening to podcasts, thinking about what I wanted to do and a lot of introspection. During that same time, you know, I had all this really interesting skill in advertising and strategy and I looked at this college and I was like, nobody here really knows how to do any of that stuff. And nobody in this system that we were in really knew how to do any of that stuff. And I started thinking, I think I could apply everything I know here and maybe blow this place up. Um, (laughs) That would be kind of interesting as like sort of like a test bed. So I started working with the marketing team at the college and started pitching them on all these ideas. And they were like, "Uh, yeah, that sounds awesome. Let's try it. So we started building marketing materials, kind of like super outside the box. We built 3D glasses for you to be able to do a virtual um, campus tour. And we did things like pine tree scent because we were up on a mountain full of pine trees. And uh, we sent like all these cards and games. And we just have a lot of creative ways of sort of trying to portray to people what a student experience would look like. The first year we launched all that, we went from, I think, 330 freshmen uh, the year before to about 550. We almost we almost doubled in freshman enrollment in one year. Uh, That for me was a resolution moment of everything that I had worked for. It wasn't for nothing. The skills I had learned were real. The line I used to say all the time during that time period was, hey, who knew? Advertising works. Marketing works. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Creative ideas work. Um, And there's instant feedback for that, you know? Mm. And I think that was... You had found yourself, it sounds like, by this point. You were like, ah, I know how to make myself light up and I know where I shine. It's almost like that experience where you were trying so hard you were doing it, but you weren't feeling fulfilled was the defining moment of showing you the path you needed to head toward. Yes. Mm. And it was like this weird mix of skills I had built because I was following threads of things I enjoyed that came together to create success. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I have a formula now. I know how to take all this stuff I know how to do and like create results. And that was the first time that all came together. Um, 
Did you have struggles while in the role at, at Pacific Union College? Definitely. The thing that I started to realize was I got so passionate and excited about change and innovation. Like those two things, I just wanted to blow everything up and reinvent it. I got almost like addicted to that idea and it was very idealistic of me. That was probably a misstep for me early on that a lot of young people have where you think you have a little success and then you can go and just blow everything up and make it all kind of work better. Um, and <laughs> that's not necessarily the case because there's people in, in all those places that you have to kind of like figure out how to work with, you know, appropriately uh, to make change happen in the right ways that's sustainable. I innovated in in my spot, you know, kind of like marketing, sales. And then I started looking outside of that. Like, okay, well, what are the other things that are stopping us from growing? Things like finance, things like student life, you know, and I started reaching my claws out to start seeing stuff that I knew I could make better. And I think that made me very unpopular very quickly um, <laughs> when I started getting outside of my lane. Mm. Yeah. If memory serves so, me correctly, you essentially like opened your own little coffee shop during this time. Yeah. Back to the coffee story. Basically, when I moved to Napa, I started against this guy, Andrew Barnett, who was running a roastery called Echo Cafe. He's one of the most generous, kind people I've ever met in my life. And he just said to me at some point, what if you come and we cup coffee together and roast coffee together and just do this every Sunday? And I was like, oh, I'm all in. Let's do it. My life started revolving around this, like, you know, working Spending time with the wife and then on the weekend, on Sunday, going and spending time with Andrew and learning about coffee. And he started giving me all these coffees to take home with me. And so I would take coffees home and cup them and, and grade them and try and figure out what was going on with the roasts. And I was driving back and forth between Napa and Santa Rosa, 45 minutes each way to get to an espresso machine because I was really interested in espresso. That was the core of my coffee passion. And at the same time, a company called La Marzocco announced a home machine that would act just like one of their commercial machines. And it was the La Marzocco GS3. And so I was like, oh, I got to get one of these things because then I don't have to keep driving back and forth. I can take all my coffee with me on Sunday, go home and start pulling shots at home all week. So I don't have to keep making these trips. It was a very expensive espresso machine, especially for like, you know, my wife had started taking nursing. I was a director of marketing, not making a ton in like a Christian college. And so we spent like all of our savings on this espresso machine and we were living in student housing and it took up 50% of our counter space. Like no joke. <laughs> uh, and what, so what is your wife, Jen, thinking about this? I have to give her so much credit, just like kind of, I mean, I've been really blessed with like a lot of family and then also Jen, who has supported some of my crazy ideas where like, I feel like probably it would have looked nuts to most people. She's big into cooking, baking. She's incredibly talented at those things. And that's like what she does really well. So for her to give me up 50% of her counter space for this stupid espresso machine, uh, is is incredible, first of all. And immediately I started thinking, okay, I just paid all this money for this espresso machine. I got to figure out something to do with this other than just pull shots here. And we were living in student housing, like I mentioned, and it so happened that our window in our kitchen opened up onto a sidewalk where a bunch of the students would walk to class. And 
I sat there one morning looking at it and I was like, this is a cafe. Like, wait a minute. Like, why, why isn't this a cafe? All I have to do is open up this window it's a, and it's a cafe. So as an experiment, I uh, invited 10 friends one morning. I was like, just show up at my window at 8 a.m. and I'll serve you coffee. So 10 friends showed up, made them all these drinks, and they all were like, well, can you do this again tomorrow? And I was like, huh, yeah, sure, I guess so. So that started a thing. I started a little newsletter uh, telling people what mornings I'm open. And then I had a, a menu that I would just stick up on the window um, that would show whatever drinks I was serving. And I would create new specials every week, like kind of culinary creations with coffee that I would write about in this newsletter and then send it out. And over time, again, credit to my wife, Jen, we'd wake up in the morning and there's lines of like 10, 15 people out of our kitchen window. She'd roll out like in pajamas (laughs) and be like, morning, everybody. You know, like I'm sitting there serving coffee and there's, and there's this this line of people on the sidewalk. We we called it, you know, incognito coffee. And sometimes she would bake for it. So there was like baked goods and coffee. Mm. And so it became kind of like a family affair as well. Was there any part Uh, of you that wanted to ditch the actual job that you had and just do that full time? Definitely. And I kind of thought that's what was going to happen eventually is that I would just open a cafe. I started really enjoying that. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, I was I was really passionate about what I was doing at Pacific Union College. I ended up loving talking to kids and being someone that could help them along their path of figuring stuff out. I started feeling like I was getting pretty good at that. It seemed like I was getting all these connections. And um, so it was hard to give that up. And like just like one hour a day get to do my passion, share it, and then like jump into this thing that also is kind of like fulfilling me. It felt really full at that at that time period. Mm. Um, so I, I didn't feel like I needed to rush it. So did that for about three years, including a move. We moved off campus to a little house and I thought it was over. I thought there's no way people are going to drive to this. It was walkable for all the students when we were in student housing. And then we moved off campus and yeah, I didn't really open it back up. And everyone was, well, when are you going to open again? And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll try. And the first day there was 20 people, like cars everywhere. Oh my and, and, then, and then it just grew. And then it just grew from there. It, it got even bigger. Wow. We started putting seating outside under our porch and people would come and treat it like a cafe and sit and talk and have meetings. It was bizarre. So, but amazing. Yeah. But amazing. It was, it was a fun time. That was a really fun period. After five years at Pacific Union College, you left to get your MBA. Talk to me about what made you make that decision. I felt I had innovated with this team. I had lovely coworkers at the college as well. Um, And all of us worked really well together, built this kind of revolutionary marketing track sales strategy that worked like a charm. And I was starting to reach out to other parts of campus to try and innovate those and and becoming an enemy in some weird ways and not not popular when I was messing with other people's places. It became clear to me that either I needed to make a decision. Either I needed to go back and reinvent the, the marketing and sales again, or it was time to, to move on and do something new. I realized I had done what I needed to do there as far as the learning went, and I needed to take the next step. Through all of that, I think it finally landed me on what I was good at, which was strategy, marketing, sales. I just didn't have a name for it in high school or college or even at the creative circus. And that gave me a name for it finally of like what it was that I was good at. 
I started thinking, okay, well, I'd always thought of myself as going on to do higher education. My family all ended up doing med school or nursing school or whatever. So what's the equivalent of that for me? And that's when I got excited about an MBA. But I wanted to do it different. I didn't want to do what everyone else did and try and apply for, you know, UC Davis or the UC system or whatever. During my coffee experience, I had become totally obsessed with Italy and all things Italian. And so I always had wanted to live abroad. We had a one-year-old son, <laughs> which seems maybe like horrible timing, but at the same time, it seemed like maybe the last chance to do something like that. I looked at European MBA programs and found out that there's an advantage with those that you can do them in a year or a year and a half versus the two years of a US program. And at the time I was, let's see, how old was I? I was already 31, 32. So I felt like a little older too. A lot of MBA people were going in their late twenties. And so I felt if I can get it done in a year and then move on into a career with an MBA, I should do it as fast as possible. And why not, you know, two birds, one stone, let's move to Italy and do it there. And was it as magical as you had hoped? The the 6,000 mile move? <laughs> well, the move, no. Uh, the move was pretty pretty brutal. And again... I think I give lots of shout outs to, to Jen here, my wife. Uh, she struggled through a lot of craziness that I took her through. But also, she had a good time. I got accepted into Bocconi uh, in, in Milano. And so we moved there in 2011. And we lived there for about a year. Um, ended up living with this like amazing Italian family that adopted us. And that was really like, I think the key to the experience. There was times like health scares, you know, like if, if our son got sick, it's like, where do we go for a doctor? What do we do if, you know, one of us has a problem? Um, there, there was a few moments like that where it was just like, oh man, I just wish we were home because it was so much more complicated there. But again, our savior was this family we lived with. And as soon as they realized we ever needed help, they would just kind of take over and say like, we got you, like, we're going to figure this out for you. The shine wears off. We all have a very romantic view of Italy or a lot of us do. And there are definitely romantic parts of it, but living there day to day is kind of a different story. And there's a lot of bureaucratic uh, inconsistencies and things that are aggravating um, when you're there that don't sure. work as smooth as they do in the US or other mm. places. What was the job search like post MBA? I had a crisis as I did at every stage in my life of what I wanted to do afterwards. Um, in some ways I thought, oh, this is my chance to go work in tech as lots of people were doing. I applied for, I think, Google, Microsoft, Amazon. I did all that. But there were some people that were like, well, aren't you gonna work in coffee? You know, uh, isn't that what you've always wanted to do? And I think I was like, no, you know, because I love it too much. I don't want to work in coffee because it'll ruin it if I go work in it. It always been my side, my side hustle and my side passion. So I started, started interviewing and all the interviews remind me of all of the things that my teachers at Creative Circus told me not to do. It all felt really structured. It all felt not very creative they wanted me to fit into a mold. And I just started feeling kind of icky with it all. And I had a mentor who I actually did my internship with in San Francisco at a cloud computing company called AppFog. His name was Chris Tacey. 
Um, I visited him in San Francisco while I was doing my job search and he sat me down and he's like, who are you interviewing with right now? And I was like, I'm a Google, Amazon. I was like, I'm actually on my seventh interview with Amazon, like expecting him to be like, oh, good for you. And he was like, <laughs> he's like, call him right now and tell him you're out. I was like, Haha, what do you mean? He's like, pick up the phone, call him, tell him you're out. And I was like, oh, why? You know, he's like, it's not for you. And He's like, I'm serious. Do it right now. And he made me do it in front of him. Oh my God. Did you feel compelled to do it? Did he convince you or you were like, yeah, he was like, okay. he's like, you're not, I know you well enough. You're not, this isn't you. Don't do it. You're going to waste the next 10 years of your life. Don't do it. Wow. I, I'm convinced. Do you recall what I'm the role convinced. was? Um, It was like a senior marketing manager role. I think on the, in college textbooks and college materials, oh, like something that I like would I would have been pretty aligned for based on my work history. Yeah. Um, and I was like, Oh yeah, that makes sense to me. Like, yeah. Right. And he was like, no, no. And, and he literally <laughs> made me just story. like call him, call him and cancel. That's uh, so amazing. <laughs> it is epic. This guy's amazing. I've never met anyone that can sum up a situation in like five words better than him. He just will tell you straight to your face in five words why something is horrible or something is great. Wow. And you always just sit there like like someone just punched you in the face when he's done. You know, you're like, <laughs> what? Um, but he so what was interesting about him is he was also a connection of mine through coffee. So he was friends with Andrew Barnett, who I'd learned how to roast from and all my coffee things. He worked in tech and he had also worked at Stumptown and he was a manager at Stumptown for a while. He's kind of this, uh, you know, avant-garde has done everything with his life. He's been like a chef, mm. a rock climber, worked at Stumptown, worked in tech. He's done everything. He had all these coffee connections too. And so he said, now that you're out on Amazon, I'm going to call, I'm going to introduce you to three people. And one of those is going to turn into your job. And I was like, seriously? He's like, yeah. So it's he like put you, me in it's like you made an appointment with the fortune teller and you're just like waiting to realize yeah. what's happening now. <laughs> oh yeah. It's seriously one of the most epic moments of my life. It's just like insane. But he so in the next day, he put me in touch with Matt Lounsbury at Stumptown, who is at the time the president of Stumptown Coffee, James Freeman, who was the owner of Blue Bottle Coffee. And then Kent Baki, who's the owner of Lamarzoco, and basically got me interviews with all three within a week wow and he was like there's two types of people in the world there's people that have to follow passion and then there's people that follow a challenge and you're a hundred percent a passion person sometimes there's a mix of both he's like you're a hundred percent passion um i'm a challenge guy i can go anywhere as long as it looks challenging to me and i'll be happy he's like you can go somewhere that looks like a challenge, but if you don't believe in it, you're not going to be happy. And he's like, so you have uh, to do how, I mean, he just coffee. explained Hauser Group for you, right? Yes. He explained everything to me. <laughs> in five words. <laughs> I need to meet this guy. <laughs> uh, he's, a, he's incredible. Keep going. You met with yeah. these three, but I'm most interested in La Marzocco. How did that become official? I actually wasn't most interest, interested in La Marzocco. Sorry, Kent Baki, if you ever hear this. Uh, but I wanted to stay in the Bay Area. I really I really love San Francisco, Napa. I like totally was in love with that place. And so I actually kind of put my hand up against La Marzocco for a while because I didn't really want to move to Seattle. I got pretty far with Stumptown and Blue Bottle. Um, 
Blue Bottle, I met with everyone all the way up until like the owner group. And they were supposed to offer me a job. And like last minute, there was like, I think one person in my interview who didn't want to hire any more MBAs and thought I was going to be MBA asshole. Mm -hmm. So that crumbled my San Francisco dreams. And Stumptown just didn't have a role in, in San Francisco at the time. So then I went back to La Marzocco after kind of like holding them off for like three months and said, hey, guys, uh, what about me? Um, and so... Joe Monahan, who was the president at the time, well, we're not sure what to do with you. We like you, but we're thinking about trying to figure out how to do more consumer. And at the time, La Marzocco was very much focused on all commercial cafe machines. So he gave me a two-month trial where he wanted me to write a business plan for what a consumer division for La Marzocco would look like. So nailed it. I completed. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, so I, I spent the next two months kind of just deep diving. And I mean, this is this was my world. I knew everything about this. I'd spent all my spare time learning about this stuff. And I was like one of the first owners of a GS3, which was like their first home machine that they didn't really consider a home machine. It was a light commercial machine. I built a whole presentation, flew up to Seattle and presented it to everyone on the team, including... Guido Bernardinelli, who's now the CEO of La Marzocco. I knew him when I lived in Milan. So I had made connections with him already when I was living there. And yes. he vouched for me and was like, yeah, this, this guy's the real deal. Let's do it. So then I got hired with the job to come in and build a consumer division for La Marzocco. They had just started thinking about a real home machine instead of the GS3, something that could be truly positioned for like high-end home. Year one, basically, they brought me in, figure out what we're going to do with this machine, both what's the machine going to be and also how are we going to sell it? That was the most basic form of what my job was. And Joe Monahan was like, before you do that though, I'm going to let you answer service calls for three months. So... I had a whole business plan. I was all raring to go. I was just off my MBA and I had all these analyses I had built and all these charts and all this stuff. And he's like, yeah, we don't want to see any of that stuff. You're going to answer like service calls. So they put me on uh, the phones and I just like every GS3 technical issue that came in, I had to answer and try and solve the problems for people. So I spent the first three months doing that. Now, which was awesome because then I started really understanding more deeply like how these people thought. A GS3 customer is a very strange person. It's a $7,000 home espresso machine. Very unique and very picky. Talk about doing market research. I had done all this like pulling of numbers and all this stuff, but like nothing gives you better market research than like talking to an angry GS3 customer uh, <laughs> where you really, really realize what these people are like expecting. It was humbling for me too, like coming out from my MBA thinking like, yeah, I'm going to come in here and change the world. And I'm sitting there like trying to fix somebody's like, you know, vacuum breaker on their GS3, which was good for me. On the flip side of that, I slowly started putting my plan in place. During that same year, I also built out the business plan for La Marzocco Home, which would be the first time that the company sold directly to consumers instead of through a reseller network. And that was a big, scary thing for everyone because La Marzocco had always been behind a reseller network and wasn't out front talking to consumers. I thought we could do it better than the reseller network could. That was the beautiful insight. It was just going to be a lot of work and who cares about that? It's just a lot of work. Most things in life are that are good. We started building out the system, built out a website. The major innovation that we developed there was I worked with an old friend, Jacob Alul Blake, to build a whole set of customizations for the machine. 
we wanted to think of it as like, if you're going to spend $7,000 on an espresso machine, like why not trick it out? So we built, you know, wood side panels, wood portafilter handles and knobs. So you could go in almost like a car and design your machine and then hit order. One of the big problems for making these high-end espresso machines go to more of a mass scale is that you can never touch them or feel them or have an experience with them. And I thought, well, if you can customize it and you can sit there and you can make one that's your own and feel like you're touching it on the screen, you're far more likely to purchase. That was laying the table for when we would come out with the new machine, which we called the Linea Mini. Which you also helped to create. Right. right. Along with Ricardo Gatti in, in Italy. Hmm. That machine came out at a lower price point, smaller footprint, $44.95 versus the $7,000 of the GS3, which still is very expensive, but it made it more accessible, reasonable for people that were used to seeing the GS3 price. And it was fashioned after the most famous of the La Marzocca machines, the Linea Classic. So it had the same lines hmm. as this machine that you see in many of the most popular cafes out there in the world. Your just over a decade into your career post-college. And it sounds like from the story you've been telling along the way that you're hitting your stride now. Is that how it's feeling to you at that time? Yeah, absolutely. I finally felt like I was doing what I was meant to do all along. Those early La Marzocco days, it's probably the most like in the right place I've ever felt for sure. I'm hitting it on all cylinders. I'm innovating. I'm pushing home espresso as a whole forward. It, it just felt like I was doing all the right stuff. What pain points came despite you being in that great place? I have story that repeats and a pattern that I've identified in myself where as soon as I start going down the road where I start to feel like I have a bit of confidence in what I'm doing and I'm innovating and making change for the better. I start looking around me at what else I can. It's almost a little bit like a drug for me to try and keep innovating other parts of the company. And I'm a little bit of a bull when it comes to that concept. And I stop losing a little bit of my self-awareness around <laughs> who I'm going to upset or step on toes. And I think that probably started happening to me a bit at La Marzocca, where I started seeing other places that I could push things and make things better and started getting outside of my lane again a little bit there. After about eight years, you left La Marzocco for spin where you are now. Yeah. Why did you ultimately decide to make the move? If I want to reduce it down, it was the same feeling that I had at Pacific Union College where I realized I had done the thing that I had come to do. And when I've done the thing that I had come to do, I realized I started getting myself in trouble. And I think that time had come for me at La Marzocco. And I had done everything I wanted to do. I felt really successful. I couldn't see a clear path for that next big thing. Mm -hmm. And so I could have probably taken a step back and said, okay, that's okay at this time in my career. I'm just going to stick with this. But I didn't feel like I was done. I wanted to do something else that was scary and big again. Have you or do you experience imposter syndrome? Yes. When I came to spin, I had a different title than I'd ever had before. So I'm senior vice president of business development. I think I know what business development is. And I think I know how to do that. And I think I know how to push this company forward. But was it just because I was in the right place at the right time at 
and maybe I don't have the skills for this new thing. I definitely had that feeling. You just never know. How do the stars actually align for success? There's always some luck involved, Yeah, I think. Mm. So there's a little piece of you that wonders how much of it was luck. The reality is if you have that long-suffering, tenacious personality, you'll probably be okay. I think it's human to, to wonder. If you could go back and talk to little pre-med 20-ish year old Scott, what would you say? Uh, don't change a thing. You're going to be fine. I don't regret anything. There's a piece of me that says like, what if I had figured out sales and marketing is actually the thing I wanted to do back then, like quicker? Would I be more advanced in my career now in some way? Maybe, but is that really happiness? No, I don't, I don't know. I'm pretty happy with the story I've been able to create. A lot of those wrong turns are probably some of the most interesting things. And again, my weird mix of advertising plus a college make me completely unique in a way that I see things that no one else will ever see it the way I do. We'll get into rapid fire. How do you define success? It's happiness. And I know that's super cliche. I care less about status and the finances and some of those things. There's a good analogy. I think people have used a lot, but... It's if you imagine your life as a book, is it one that you want to read when you're making decisions? And someone told me that at one point, and it's such a good way to think about it. If you were to title your next chapter um, and you're looking at a decision, is it a chapter that you are proud of and excited about? God, and that's a good one. Yeah. If you put yourself in that spot and just ask yourself that question, is this next big decision I'm making, this is the title. Am I excited about it? And is it one that I'm going to want to read? And I can honestly say that at pretty much every point, I followed that philosophy of doing the thing that maybe wasn't normal or the most clear thing, but the one that I wanted to read, like the chapter I wanted to read. So I love that. that to me is a success. If you could switch jobs with anyone. Who would you switch jobs with? I think secretly, if I'm bearing my soul, I've always wanted to be a performer, an actor, a singer, someone that entertains. I performed in a lot of musicals and plays when I was in high school and in college. What do you prefer, remote or in-person work? It's, it's a mixed bag. I've been remote now for almost three years. So I think maybe in some ways grass is greener. Do you miss the camaraderie of an office because I never get it now? I think the ideal situation for me is probably 70 or 80% remote and 20 or 30% office mix. What's an item on your desk that you can't live without? Well, I have a spin on my desk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is my plug, I guess, but it is pretty amazing. I could just sit here and grab a cup of coffee anytime I want. What is a word that drives you nuts? There's a saying that irks me more than anything else, which is there's a little truth in every joke. There's nothing that gives me fighting words more than that saying, because I'm a believer in being able to express yourself in a way that is truly just to make somebody laugh. Back to your acting career. Who would you have oh, played no. you? Who would you have played you in a movie? Oh my goodness. Uh, well, Eddie Redmayne. The guy that played Stephen Hawking. The guy that played Stephen Hawking. You got it. He was also in a bunch of Burberry ads that I thought were really cool. What is the company on your resume that's turned the most heads? Definitely La Marzocco, especially if you're ever going anywhere in coffee. Everyone knows La Marzocco. Mm. It's this revered heritage brand. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> everything else on my resume, people would be like, what? Uh, <laughs> I'd like you to label three of your jobs, love, ultimate fun, skip. Love, I have to say La Marzocco, fun, Pacific Union College, skip Hauser Group, mm. if I had to. I wouldn't skip it, but I mean, if anyone on the yeah. list, I would skip that one. Scott, thank you so much for sharing your story and for helping to normalize the journey. Sharing the FNAP is really a blip, a state of mind, and not the ethos of what it means to be successful. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time and your story. Yeah. Thank you, Deanne. I think what you're doing is super cool, even from the lens of having spent so much time talking to kids in high school, trying to figure it out normalizing this is really important for us to do as middle-aged people and people that have careers. It's important for them to hear this from us. It's really important what you're doing. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Effing Up. I'm your host, Deanne Reiner. If you enjoyed today's episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe on the platform you use to listen to podcasts. Share Effing Up with others, post about it on social media, and leave a rating and review. Until next time, Count your perceived failures as part of your path to success. After all, we're all effing up.